Welcome back to the Intertitle Podcast, where we explore the wild and squishy world around us through data and science. This episode is an interview with Dr. Holly Freelich. If you joined us for episode five with Jono Wilson, he mentioned Dr. Freelich as a person who coined the phrase conservation aquaculture and is doing the research now about what exactly that would look like. What do we need to understand to build systems that can feed communities and also sustain the ocean? Dr. Freelich and I discovered a shared love of sturgeon, which means we're going to briefly mention something in this podcast called anadromous fish. Anadromous fish are species that split their lives between two ecosystems, the rivers and the sea. They start off in rivers, then they head out to eat and grow big for years in the ocean, and then they swim back up the rivers to spawn and often to die there. Most fish just pick one ecosystem for their whole world. They either stay in freshwater or they stay in saltwater. And they just stick to that system because it's expensive and kind of hard to go back and forth between managing freshwater and saltwater. But not sturgeon. Sturgeon like to do it all. They're not one of the oldest living organisms on Earth because they skip the challenging stuff. So let's get right to it. So tell us a little bit about your work. Yeah, so uh, I'm an assistant professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara. I'm about a year into my appointment, um, and a lot of what I do is around research on fisheries, aquaculture, and climate change. Is that something that you wanted to do when you first got into science? No. So I wasn't going to be a scientist um, when I was younger. I, I was pretty certain I was going to be in the arts, a fashion designer of some sort. Um, and then I took a very hard left turn um, and was exposed to really amazing professors at a community college that totally changed my trajectory. Um, and I really, wow. yeah, it, it, it got, where was this? Uh, so this was actually at uh, West Valley College. So that's up in Northern California. And they have a really incredible biology department. Um, and as a liberal arts major, I had to take science class because, you know, they want they want you to be well-rounded. Um, and so I ended up taking biology classes and just really fell in love with the whole concept of being able to ask questions and get paid to do it. Right. I, I just, <laughs> yeah. That's a great yeah. description of science to get paid to ask questions. That's it. I mean, that's, that's fundamentally it. And, and that's a pretty incredible job to really think about that. Um, and yeah, so it, it ended up just really kind of being at the right place, really getting embedded into things like mathematical modeling and coding and working with fish. And just, it was, it's a really interesting dynamic field, I think, um, that has a little bit of everything, certainly very much in the, the data realm for sure. So that's interesting. You went from being excited about a job where you get to ask questions for a living, for a core part of the job, to coding pretty fast. Yeah, yeah. So I was really fortunate in that my institution, uh, UC Davis, so I went from community college and did the transfer agreement, which I can't recommend enough for people to do um, who are in California. 
it's it's an incredible way to kind of get your general education out of the way and then transfer to a four-year college and get the- I think that's common for a lot of community colleges too. Yeah. And it is a great opportunity for people to go figure out what you want to do at community college. And then you can figure out where you want to specialize at another college after that. Exactly. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but when I was 18, like I said, I, I really- I mean, I was going to be an artist. So, you know, um, you really are able to kind of find yourself a little bit um, with that community college and you don't have to go into debt. So that's pretty great. But yeah, so I, I went to UC Davis and, you know, they have the most kind of echelon or top ecology departments and conservation departments uh, in the United States. And I was, a, I was lucky enough to kind of get entwined and interact with people who were using uh, movement and telemetry data and um, just starting in the kind of R revolution. So R programming, which is now kind of one of the go-to languages um, in the scientific community. And I was, I got exposed to that um, and I ended up going to get my PhD at the University of uh, Washington School of Aquatic and Fishery Sciences. And there, they put quantitative and coding very high on the to-do list. Um, and so- Yes, like, yes, they do. Coding. Yeah. So it's a lot of just like having people constantly being like, this isn't a thing that's important. Being familiar with the data, knowing how to interpret and visualize and analyze these things are going to be a really powerful tool, whether you're you know, measuring something that's actively in the water or if you're collecting emerging data um, that other people have collected and you need to interpret that at a much larger scale from global to local, right? So, Can we nerd out a little bit about R, the programming language? And for those of you listening, I'm excited about this. For those of you listening, when we say R, we are talking about the letter R. It's a capital R usually, yes, because if it's a small R, that means something else to scientists. But the big R, and it's R programming language. And this is a programming language that's very commonly used by scientists all around the world. And it was constructed, the, the person who really wrote it and created it is still with us, right? Still actively working on it. Yeah. And it and it's just kind of blossomed into this incredible community too. Um, you know, I can't really speak to the, the other coding community dynamics, but certainly in the R community, people are really thoughtful. And, and it feels like it's a, a group of people who are all just giant science nerds or STEM people that just want to work together and imbue themselves and develop packages and figure out how to make something that's open and available for you know, high level scientists or people just really interested in data visualization, right? Like it runs the gamut of the people that interface with R. And I think it just makes it even better um, than, than some of these other software packages that are quite, you know, controlled, contained, um, and are out of the box you have to pay to use, right? Yeah, I think of R as really like an open source Lego kit in a lot of ways, as if, you know, not yeah. the old school Lego kits, you know, nowadays you buy Lego kits and half the packages are preformed and then there's three bricks, just basic bricks. But back in the old days, Legos were just bricks, you know, different right. colored bricks and a few different shapes and you could make almost anything out of them. And with R, it's not just that you can make anything out of it, but you can also mold the bricks yourself. You can make your own yeah. bricks and and then build whatever you need to with it. It's 
It's been a delightful language to watch from the outside. I am not by any means an, an R expert, but I think back in the day when I was working with data in grad school and we were using very rudimentary early models, I built my models at the University of Washington using a package called Stella. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. There were little cloud icons and you dragged them around on your Mac screen. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Good times. It's much better now. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And I I would say, you know, one thing that I found um, really encouraging is that there's so many women um, that are working in the R universe. Um, So you have all these really amazing women that are pushing for coding and kind of really diversifying what it looks like um, to be in this computational space that has largely been, um, you know, older white men um, dominating the coding universe. And now you have this just suite of new people coming in. And it's pretty exciting to see just the the sheer diversity of people getting involved through things like Our Ladies, um, which are these international um, groups of people that coordinate specifically around, you know, boosting up women to learn how to code um, and advance their coding skills. And it's really, yeah, it's something quite special, I think. So you were an early R lady, yes. And then, then you went up to Seattle to where it, it's it's a little like Caltech for fishery science up there. <laughs> We've got people who are basically like biking around on the fisheries equivalent of unicycles, thinking about stock assessment modeling twenty four seven. Oh my gosh, yeah, yeah. Which I mean, my my advisor, my old advisor up there, um, Tim Essington. He definitely uh, is one that kind of bridges the gap between the kind of traditional ecology world of which uh, I would say that I I am a little more in that realm um, and bridging the gap between that and say the stock assessment world. Um, Because that was the one thing that always kind of, I wanted to get into this more marine science realm, but I I knew I didn't want to be in stock assessment. Like that was not something that I wanted to uh, paint myself in the corner as, um, as I moved through graduate school. And uh, fortunately, Tim was somebody that kind of was able to, to work in both realms. And so I was able to kind of merge my ecology with my quantitative skills that I wanted to, to bolster up. And so you got to think of the fish, not just as populations in and of themselves to be assessed, but fish as members of the ocean ecosystem. And how can data help you think about the whole framework of the ocean? Absolutely. That's, that's a really apt way of, of saying that. Um, yeah. And I, and I think a lot of it was being really cognizant that, you know, knowing, knowing your organism and having some familiarity with the basic biology of these systems and the ecological principles that we learn as natural scientists end up playing really critical roles on the assumptions that you make in the modeling world, right? So it's very much, and I would argue that you want a little bit of both in your life. You know, you want the empirical, you want the base physiological understanding of the system, and you want to be able to model and code. Um, And if one of those things is missing, you might make, you know, some higher level assumptions in your model that are incorrect, or you might miss some other kind of larger population implication, right, when you're looking at an individual. So it's really beneficial to be able to kind of look across at both scales. So were you thinking about aquaculture when you were doing your 
graduate research. How did the aquaculture piece come yeah. into it for you? It's a bit of a, I have a, like a slight aquaculture origin story. It's not as amazing as say like X-Men, um, but it's, <laughs> you know, I, I actually got my foot in the door in the fisheries world through aquaculture. Um, so I, when I was at Davis, I was working at the Center for Aquatic Biology and Aquaculture, where I did most of my work on green and white sturgeon, which are- <gasps> I love them so um, much. The yeah, they're <laughs> arguably my favorite fish. It's, it's, a clo- <gasps> it's a close runoff between spiny lump suckers and green sturgeon. It's- I, I, you know, don't make me choose. Wait, tell me about the spiny lump sucker. Where do they live? (laughs) Okay. So before we talk about origin story, spiny lump suckers are these, and there's a suite of different species of of lump suckers that exist. um, Some of which are actively produced within the aquaculture realm. So it's even better. Um, But yeah, spiny lump suckers are these little native species um, in the West coast. Uh, They don't get any bigger than say like a, a giant gobstopper or um, like a jawbreaker size. So, wow. and, they're, and they're shaped like that too. So there are these really what? round, they're really cute. Um, they're these like little round, almost look like little ornaments um, and they're very bad swimmers. And so they just kind of float around, but they have a modified fin so they can stick onto different substrates like rocks and and you know kelp things like that. Um, so they they have a suction cup basically on the bottom of the uh, of their body and they can just kind of hang out and eat little things particulates um, off of those those items. It, they're just great and they're very cute. Um, I wow. highly encourage everyone to Google spiny lump sucker and tell me they're not. We will make sure to include some spiny lump sucker content when we post this podcast. I'm very excited to learn about them. And and we could talk about surgeon all day too, because <laughs> I one of one of my great lifetime achievements was working on a California bill called the Sturgeon Security Act. Did you? Where yes, we we raised the tried to raise the penalties for illegally stealing sturgeon for poaching sturgeon out of California rivers because it was just a fifty dollar yeah. fine, which is nothing when you're making five thousand dollars on the caviar from that exactly. sturgeon. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's kind of amazing. I feel like we're kindred spirits because I <laughs> was working on a project to understand where. Uh, green sturgeon go and what their kind of tolerance levels are in different tributaries and water conditions and actively trying to breed them in captivity to kind of follow some of the the suits in conservation aquaculture that has happened with white sturgeon. Right. That's really how I got my introduction to aquaculture is, is through the sturgeon, which feels it feels appropriate in the U.S. because U.S. sturgeon um, and aquaculture are are very tightly linked. Yes, yes, and the fact that they are so valuable, the broodstock that mm-hmm. you actually do surgery on them to remove the caviar because you want them to live. You know, you yeah. it's you want them to live for many years and live happy lives. So they're very valuable, and they're the sturgeon operating rooms and the masks and the care that is taken with those sturgeon is impressive. Yeah, it's kind of amazing to be able to learn how to do an ultrasound and do it on a fish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's, and, yeah. And, and they're just such interesting, charismatic little creatures um, that are just so hardy, but are so sensitive on the other side. Like they, I remember when I was taking care of them, you know, they could be out of the water for several minutes at a time and be totally fine. Like they don't, 
get as stressed as other species, say like the Delta smelt um, in California, which is also endangered. Um, if you look at a Delta smelt wrong, they die in captivity. Yeah, Just very sensitive. Sturgeon, on the other hand, super hardy, um, as you probably know. But all of their tributaries, overfishing, long life history strategies, it's just the, yeah, the cards are very much stacked against these guys. Well, it's definitely a challenge for, I mean, we're working on long-term resilience or, or climate resilience these days to look at these species that seem very hardy because yeah. they've adapted to a certain type of condition. And then you think, wait, what just happened? Because right. one variable that you didn't think of changed and you think, oh, they're resilient to these 99 things. Why was that one thing really bad? Well, you know, humans are resilient to a lot of things too, but if you drop us in boiling water, we we don't do very well. Yeah, exactly. And I think, yeah, and I feel as though with a lot of these species, um, whether it's sturgeon or otherwise, and some of the kind of motivations for my research is this trying to reconcile, you know, the, the physiological capacities of these organisms. How are they adapting? How do humans intervene in that adaptation for better or worse? Um, and ultimately, you know, is it going to be death by a thousand cuts? Um, which I would argue is kind of the case for sturgeon, where it's just all of these things stacked up on each other. And it's the compounding effects that, you know, one thing on its own likely wouldn't trigger the extinction of these species, but all of them at once simultaneously and, and not one is being, uh, not all of them are being coordinated combined. Um, and so you just kind of have a recipe for somewhat of a disaster. So moving away from sturgeon, you you go up to the University of Washington, you look at the whole ecosystem, and then you're ready to postdoc and you think aquaculture, I'm coming back. <laughs> yeah, I wish it was that thought out. That, <laughs> that makes science seem very linear in nature. Yeah, no, it was it was um, going up to Washington, you know, moving from anadromous species to being a marine scientist. I really wanted that marine connection. And I was convinced I was going to study fish. But a really uh, unproductive event on my first day of graduate school of trying to catch English soul and unsuccessfully doing it um, automatically turned me into an invertebrate ecologist pretty much overnight. So we couldn't catch any English soul in Puget Sound, which was uh, my study system. And so I was left kind of depending upon the Dungeness crab to save my dissertation, of which it very much did. I was able to get my doctorate. So I have to think Dungeness crab. Good work, Dungeness crab. Right. I mean, they're delicious and hearty. So yeah, and got me a PhD. So I ended up studying crab and uh, those fisheries and, and really figuring out, you know, how to merge the physiology, biology side of the equation of what I was so familiar with. And kind of building in more modeling and coding skills as, as we talked about. And then it's kind of like most science things, you you try to find a position and a call for, for a postdoc um, that fits your interests, but also within the realm of like where you want to stay. I, my partner and I, we wanted to stay on the West Coast. Um, we were pretty adamant about that. He was a bit tired of uh, the dreariness of <laughs> Seattle um, mm -hmm. and was tired of the gray. So we were looking and viewing California and a postdoc at the National Center for Ecological Analysis and Synthesis, or NCES, um, popped up and it was for looking at the sustainability of offshore aquaculture, which 
I was not an expert in uh, going into that, but it definitely was in line with thinking about cultured and wild systems interacting and you know what what does that mean for future scapes of seafood production and management. So there was a lot of themes that overlapped, but it was definitely kind of this new phase of research and an expansion of these concepts into a much bigger stage for sure. How did you convince them that you were the right fit for that postdoc when it was about something that you hadn't worked on as offshore aquaculture? Yeah. I, mean, I have I have no doubt that you are rocking it, but I am curious about that process where we all have yeah. to sort of position ourselves for this thing we want to grow into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I very much put forward um, some of the research that I had done with uh, forage fish. So mm-hmm. I, I leveraged a lot of my research of, okay, you know, while I have not actively studied something like Atlantic farm salmon uh, within my dissertation purview, but I have studied the things that they eat and I have studied uh, impacts from anthropogenic stressors and I've worked in aquaculture during my undergrad and so merging these concepts of wild and farm like I will be your your most well-suited candidate for this position because I can think about both sides which you know I argued was was uncommon um, to have both aquaculture and, and pure wild fisheries perspective and I guess it worked so <laughs> Great. Congratulations. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, but that's that's kind of how I got back into aquaculture. So how much aquaculture do we need to be able to feed the entire planet? Oh, man. Uh, what time scale <laughs> are we operating? Yeah. Um, well, it, it really depends. I mean, the it's a really interesting consideration that a lot of people are thinking about of I think everybody's pretty much on board that aquaculture is going to be part of our food system and a growing part of our food system into the future. Uh, but how much and where it's come from, going to come from and what species and how far from shore or inland or all of those types of considerations, I would argue, are still very much um, under consideration and and part of the scientific discourse and dialogue of you know how do we do this in a most sustainable manner and arguably not just thinking about seafood but kind of our larger food systems in general. Absolutely. So, what are you working on these days? Well, now that you can't be in the lab, what are you what are you doing to keep an eye on things when you're outside of your research environment? Yeah, so um, very much kind of tied to that high level question of how much aquaculture and how are we going to feed a very hungry planet um, and do so sustainably. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm working on several different projects at different scales around that, that question. Certainly offshore aquaculture is and will probably continue to be part of that conversation in my research. Um, but I actually have two new graduate students who are starting. Um, One has already started about a month ago um, and my other graduate student will be starting in September. And so they will be really heavily focused on components of um, where aquaculture overlaps and and the potential to kind of minimize those impacts and account a lot for the social dimension because that's proving to be a really important part for aquaculture into the future that you, you know, you can figure out what the biophysical requirements could be um, in a given and suitable location. But if people don't want it there 
or if the policies there aren't exactly aligned or well laid out to promote that type of development, you're not going to see it happen. So some of the stuff we're doing is looking locally. So um, a California case study of how aquaculture and fisheries have changed over time. We're doing some work across multiple um, coastal sites uh, throughout all 23 um, coastal states, looking at how marine aquaculture has changed over time relative to fisheries. That's all funded through um, National Sea Grant. And a lot of it is tied to this idea of thinking about climate change and resilience and a lot of the stuff that you know we've talked about over the last 20 minutes of all of these consideration and factors that can influence the aquatic environments and how can we uh, collectively as a scientific community um, and partner and work with policymakers and industry to think about um, other attributes that perhaps they hadn't thought about before that could um, embed or create uh, more resilience, especially in a changing climate. And when you say thinking about things locally, do you find that transparency and some type of engagement and, and in fact, direct benefit to the local communities is a big part of setting up a successful aquaculture program? Gosh, that would be a question for somebody like Barry Costa Pierce. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I honestly don't know. I would say yes, probably. Um, but my aquaculture research is so global right now in nature that, you know, I don't want to speak for the local community to say whether or not I'm I'm doing a good job uh, within this realm. Um, but it, Got it, yeah, I would say that is a big motivation for what I want to do next. So this kind of large, you know, 30,000 foot view that I've been taking over the last five plus years for aquaculture, I'm starting to zero in and have kind of a more localized context now, because I think to your point, it is really important of being part of the community, being part of um, what's going on in my backyard when it comes to coastal systems. So I, I would argue yes, but um, TBD, because I'm just starting to do that kind of more localized application stuff, but I'm really excited about it. Yeah, I, for me, it calls a little bit back to the earlier part of our conversation about learning R and having that feel like you had some tools to get into the data and understand the data and manipulate the data. And as these new aquaculture facilities move forward, does giving people the ability to access and see and use and give feedback on the data, make people feel more bought into the development that's going on off their shore, whether or not they get to eat the fish or just make money off the fish. Yeah. I mean, and that would be my dream um, is having more transparency um, in, in aquaculture production, whether that's the U.S. or otherwise. Um, it's, it's amazing because we look at something like uh, wild fisheries and wild fisheries have done at least the commercial level production has done a really amazing job of trying to keep track of all of this information, part of it out of necessity and law, right? <laughs> of the Magnuson right. Stevens Act requires this level of accounting um, and bookkeeping for stock assessments. And you just don't have the same level of precedent, right? For aquaculture. So that type of friction um, between, say, the social dimensions that I mentioned um, and this kind of transparency and data attribution, um, I think are kind of one of the same coin, right? So if you're able to kind of track some of this and you'll benefit likely uh, in the long run because you're able to track trends and stuff in your own farm or you know, zone of aquaculture, 
Um, but I think you're right that this kind of data type of application is going to be very important um, for aquaculture. And I mean, in fairness, a lot of people are thinking about this um, and, and trying to employ it, whether that's through programs like Google, developing things like Tidal, which are applications to monitor in real time fin fish production in places like Norway um, and other companies like Scoot Science, um, which are using analytics and stuff for forecasting aquaculture production. So a lot of people are definitely thinking about it. Um, I'm hoping that one day I get to have access to that said data um, to have better and <laughs> more accurate estimates um, of aquaculture production for our scientific questions. But that will, you know, that's down the line for sure. All right. Well, here's to more innovation and more research and more open data as a result of it. Yeah. Oh, man, that would be that would be the, the goal, the end all. There you have it. This episode, a slightly anadromous journey through data and the watery parts of the world seafood supply. Thanks for joining us today. And thanks to all of you who are taking the time to observe the world, to take notes, and to share what you discover. You're part of that open data world of the future already. This episode is produced by Melanie Scroggins, and it's brought to you by crabs. Yep, crabs. Crustaceans, armored underwater scavenging beasts, the Dungeness crab, the blue crab, the Kalanectes sapitus, the beautiful swimmer in Latin, giant coconut crabs, shiny Disney decorator crabs, tiny hermit crabs, Mr. Crabs, and horseshoe crabs, giving their blood for our medicines. Thanks, crabs. Thanks for taking what's cast off and discarded and turning it into glorious crabbiness. <laughs>